reading this morning can be found on page 1427 and is from Mark 3, verse, starting at verse 7 until verse 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boagenidas, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother.
it's good to know who you're dealing with, isn't it? I was um, uh, out with some friends, uh, went to live back in Manchester, and this would have been about 15 years after we'd all left school. But we bumped into some of our old teachers from our high school on their own night out. And it was all very friendly. There was us, there was our old teachers, and plus some of the new teachers that we didn't know. And uh, it was a great little reunion. And we were reminiscing about old times and about old teachers. And I was talking to one teacher uh, who I thought was new and, a new te- and an old teacher about Ms. Book. Ms. Book was our religious education teacher. And everyone really liked her. I said, oh, Ms. Book, she was a great teacher. All the lads fancied her. I wonder whatever happened to Ms. Book. I'm Miss Book, she, <laughs> she replied. And there was this awful, awkward moment where it was clear to her that I hadn't recognized her because 15 years had taken the toll. So, <laughs> it's good to know who you're dealing with. And in chapter 3, Cal has just read for us, the Pharisees reckon they know who they're dealing with in Jesus. So despite Jesus showing all goodness and showing every sign that he is God's chosen rescuer king, they failed to recognize him as that. And the bit just before Carla read, verse 5, Jesus is angry and distressed at the hardness of hearts, uh, which are more concerned with seeing themselves proved right than having compassion and welcoming Jesus' rescue. Indeed, they've settled in opposition to him. So they've decided that he's the baddie and they are the goodies. So in verse 6, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. What a laugh. The Herodians, right? They were in cahoots with the Romans. They represented everything the Pharisees were against. They were actually guilty of the things that they were accusing Jesus of. See, the Pharisees are so blind that they can't see the irony of joining with the baddies to try and make themselves the goodies. But now things have got past the point where they have been able to deny Jesus' power and his authority over disease and evil spirits because of all that's gone on. So to justify their murderous intent, they've got to resort instead to questioning where Jesus' power and authority comes from. I've got a friend who's been through um, one of these big conflicts that you get in a workplace. It's the kind of situation where the more you know about it, the less you feel like you know what's going on, that kind of thing. But he said to me the best advice he'd had in dealing with all that was to never ascribe motivation to someone's actions. So don't assume you know why they did what they did, in other words. Well, that's what the Pharisees are doing here. And that's what, with Jesus, and that's what people all over the world, people in Adelaide, perhaps people in this room, are doing right now. Instead of believing Jesus' explanation of all he is doing and saying, coming up with something else to explain Jesus away. See, everyone needs to decide who Jesus is and why and how he did what he did. And how we respond to that question 
is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. If you are a note-taker and you want to do an outline, I've got three headings for you. Um, so if you did the first two to about there, we've got a typical day at the office. I've gone with a work kind of theme, all right? A typical day at the office, meet the new team, and then the, mo- the, main, the longest bit is working lunch. A typical day at the office, meet the new team, a working lunch. Uh, I'll call it a typical day at the office, that first bit from verse 7, because Mark's sort of kind of summarizing this chunk, a typical day at the office, so to speak, in this phase of Jesus' life and ministry. So throughout the early chapters we've seen, haven't we, that, um, oh, I'll just get the PowerPoint, thank you. We've seen that crowd control is increasingly becoming a problem. Uh, and Jesus ministering to people is threatening to derail his mission. So part of Jesus' ministry, his compassionate healing of the sick, which of course he does because he's, he loves people and because he can, he's healing people all over the place, that's threatening to derail his mission to preach repentance and belief in him. Preaching that he himself has the authority of God. He himself is God's kingdom drawing near preaching that now is your chance to get into God's kingdom by turning away from rebellion against God and throwing your lot in with Jesus. The places um, that Mark lists there in verse 8, they kind of verbally draw the boundaries of the whole nation, including Gentile areas, non-Jewish areas. So what Mark is telling us is that by now, Jesus is not just a Galilee phenomenon, not a northern thing, is a national phenomenon, more popular than John the Baptist was. And so large are the crowds that Jesus had to change his office, as it were, from synagogues and towns and villages to gathering by the lake. Those with diseases long to touch Jesus for healing. Now, presumably, Jesus could have, I don't know, crowd surfed through them or given them all a holy high five or something. But Jesus' priority is still preaching, and so he uses a boat to stop them crowding him. And the crowds were difficult to cope with on a typical day, and so were impure spirits or demons. So have a look at verse 11. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us heaps about what these evil spirits or demons are, except that they are fallen angels, spiritual beings who have rebelled against God and they're in cahoots with Satan and are opposed to him. So Mark's gospel shows us that woven through all the words and the dinners and meals and the healings and the debates, there's a spiritual battle going on. And things are coming to a head. Demons are being confronted with the one of all, with all power and authority to cast them into eternal punishment. And it's provoking a reaction from them. But their reaction is not helpful to Jesus' mission. Now, we Mark doesn't tell us the tone of voice when they say, call Jesus son of God. Are they being sarcastic? Are they being in terror? In any case, Jesus shuts them up. Why? 
Well, for starters, who wants to get a reference from an evil spirit? You know, the medium would probably turn people away from the message. Secondly, the timing for people fully getting who Jesus is is all wrong. And if Herod Antipas gets wind that Jesus is claiming to be God's king, then he could come and destroy him or try to. And thirdly, I think this is Mark's main concern. I think that just cause yet more crowd problems, yet more distractions from Jesus' mission of preaching. I mean, I know some of you in our church have personally witnessed demonic activity. And what I love is your maturity that you don't, you very rarely, if ever, talk about it. Because actually, all they are is just a distraction from the one who is really worth listening to, to Jesus. We don't need to fear them because they fear Jesus and tremble at his feet. No, it's much better to fear missing out on anything Jesus has got to say. It's much better to fear being distracted from Jesus' mission. I love taking photos and videos on my phone, but I still heed the warning a colleague gave me years ago. She had a great turn of phrase. She said, no one wants to see a picture of you spoiling the view of one of the seven wonders of the world. <laughs> Just buy a postcard. See, you can spend so much effort taking photos or videos of an occasion or a place of interest that you miss out on just enjoying being there, enjoying the moment. So don't get distracted by the, so distracted by the supernatural that you miss listening to Jesus. And don't get so distracted by human opposition to Jesus, get into all apologetic arguments and stuff, a good to know your way around, but don't get so distracted by them that you forget to listen to Jesus. But humanly speaking, Jesus knows that if he's going to get this message out to such large crowds, he needs to expand. So he calls a select few. So let's meet the new team. Meet the new team, verses 13 to 19. Again, we see Jesus' authority. He calls some up a mountainside, and they come. And he appoints 12 of them and gives them his authority. Firstly, his authority to preach. Uh, the message of which they'll pick up by being with him. That's the sort of classic way students would learn from their rabbi or teacher, uh, just spending life with them. And secondly, um, there's no time for distractions, so he gives them that same authority to drive out demonic opposition. Mark words this part in a way that makes us recall God calling Israel to be his people on a mount, another mountainside, the mountainside of Sinai. And appointing 12 is a significant number, as the current establishment is 12 tribes of Israel, making up God's people. So Jesus is establishing a new people of God, apart from any synagogue, apart from the current establishment. And what a ragtag bunch of people they are, isn't it? Isn't it? They're starting this new people with. We've got Peter, who will go on to deny Jesus, patron saint of stuffing things up. We've got Matthew, who we've already met Matthew, he's Levi, the tax collector, 
once hated by his people for being in league with the Romans. And you've got to wonder how he got on with Simon the Zealot, who's probably called the Zealot because of his political activism against the Romans. Sworn enemies now united in Jesus' mission. United in being called by Jesus to serve him. And that's what we are. Now, before we launched our church, I remember having a prayer meeting or something at our house. And as people were arriving, I could hear two people having a good old yarn outside the window. I had a look, and it was Malachi and Carla. One with fleshy, big fleshy piercings, piercings everywhere, tattoos on every limb, and then and elsewhere. And what about Malachi as well? He was there as well. <laughs> But where else would you get such different people talking together as brother and sister? And it was a beautiful picture of the unity we have in Jesus, the people of God that Jesus is creating. Now, it always tickles me when there's something about the royal family in the news, and I get asked about it as if by virtue of being British, they're somehow specially relevant to me. Your queen, people always say. I like to point out that she's your queen as well. And you had the chance, you declined the chance to be a republic, so that makes you more monarchist than the Brits are. <laughs> so no special connection for me, but Christians are specially connected to Jesus. We do represent him. We do have his authority. We are his loyal subjects together. And we're not the apostles, we're not the original eyewitnesses. But all of us who belong to Jesus have his authority, his words, his commission to make disciples and grow disciples. We are the new people of God. Well, back to the story for now. Crowds are still a problem. And Jesus and his disciples are so up to their necks in preaching to the crowds that they have to have a working lunch. A working lunch. This is our heading for our main point. They have to work inside. They have to go without food. And being so sold out to Jesus' mission prompts a reaction from his family. Verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. If we live life sold out for Jesus, people are going to rub up against it. They're going to think we're taking it too far. Now, I know we're talking about Jesus going without food, but Mark's gospel is full of sandwiches. And there's one here, did you notice? So lots of places, Mark will talk about one thing, and then there's another episode, and then he'll talk about that first thing again. And the slices of bread, as it were, help you to understand the filling. So here, Jesus' family is the slices of bread. It starts with Jesus' family um, thinking he's having some kind of breakdown, and it ends with Jesus talking about who is really his family, when they do eventually turn up. So how does this help us with today's passage? Well, we'll see that Jesus is rejected by the Pharisees for a specific reason. 
and that he strongly rejects them for their reasoning. But the idea of family uh, and whether you are in or out of it is much broader. Uh, so Mark's arranged his material to make us ask ourselves, who do I think Jesus is? What do I think Jesus' motivation is? Where do I think his words come from? Where do I think his power and authority come from? And based on my answer to those questions, am I in Jesus' family or out? So that's the issue. Am I in Jesus' family or out? And the account of the Pharisees is a very specific example of how they're out of it. So let's see what Jesus has to say when the Pharisees keep prodding, keep treating Jesus as a fake. Verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Beelzebul is a Hebrew name for Satan, um, a fallen angel who led a rebellion against God and now works in opposition to God and his purposes. So in other words, the Pharisees reckon that Jesus' power and authority come from God's archenemy, not from God. They think the exact opposite of what Jesus is claiming. And Jesus' response, well, your argument just doesn't stack up. Even just applying simple logic, it, it doesn't work, because everything Jesus has been doing has demonstrably been undoing the work of Satan, freeing people from the imprisoning slavery to demons. And Satan wouldn't attack himself because then he'd bring about his own downfall. You know, countless governments and businesses and sports teams and I'm afraid churches can all testify that division is often quickly followed by destruction. So if you've got an objection to Jesus, let me ask you, does your assessment of Jesus stand up to scrutiny? Does Mark's gospel in front of us about Jesus stand up to scrutiny? Now, of course, you know, I'm a pastor, so you probably guessed I think it does. But any fair and even-handed assessment of the evidence about Jesus, of his claims about himself, doesn't allow you to just dismiss him out of hand as the Pharisees tried to do. But words are important, aren't they? They're powerful and persuasive. And there's no shortage of fine-sounding arguments and theories to deny Jesus is who he said he was. But if Mark's gospel is true, Jesus is still alive. Jesus is God, and you can know him personally. Not just know about him, although that's part of it, but know him like you know a friend or a family member. So I challenge you to ask, ask him, as you read Mark's gospel, ask Jesus to speak to you in a way you will understand. Have a go at believing him and see what happens. But Jesus isn't finished with the Pharisees. Since they've brought up their take on what's going on behind the scenes in the supernatural realm, spiritual realm, Jesus is keen to correct them. 
verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, and then he can plunder the strong man's house. Satan hasn't been telling Jesus what to do. Jesus has bound up Satan, and he's been claiming back off him those that Satan had tried to claim for himself. That's what Jesus is saying. See, Satan's greatest weapon has been to be able to accuse us before God. So like the class sneak who likes to present the teacher with evidence to get you into trouble, Satan loves to point out to God everything that is wrong about us, showing him how um, he or his minions or just our own selfish hearts tempt us to turn our backs on God and we willingly take the bait over and over again. Satan knows that in God's perfect holiness, that in the very goodness and and nature of who he is, God must condemn us, find us guilty as charged. But Jesus has changed all that. Jesus' wide-ranging, total obedience gives us, wins us our wide-ranging, total forgiveness. Jesus' wide-ranging, total obedience wins our wide-ranging total forgiveness. See, Jesus, remember, went into the wilderness and resisted Satan. In his entire life on earth, Jesus didn't have any dirty washing, any skeletons in his closet for Satan to expose before God. So now as Jesus speaks, Satan's defeat has begun. He's tied up, powerless against Jesus. And Jesus will go on to offer himself as a sacrifice in our place. And because he's perfect, his sacrifice redeems us, pays the price for our sins. And in place of our record of sin, we receive Jesus' record of righteousness, of loving God perfectly. And so the only weapon Satan had left against us to accuse us is gone. Our sin hidden in Christ, God declares as innocent, worthy, and gives us a seat at the family table with Jesus. So that's what it means that Satan is bound up. And this binding up means that Jesus can perfectly, righteously forgive us. And Jesus comes and plunders us from Satan Have you ever thought about God's forgiveness through Jesus like that? Plundered. You've been plundered. Jesus has gone into enemy territory where we were held captive in slavery to ourselves and to Satan and stole us away on a daring rescue mission and brought us safe safe and secure into his kingdom. Not to an offshore processing center to prove our health or worth, but straight into his family home to party with him and to rest with him. This is the good news that we're part of when we repent and believe in Jesus. This is how we bind up Satan with the gospel. In 1 Timothy, the apostle Paul's writing to his ministry buddy Timothy, who's working in Ephesus, that Ephesus was like pagan occult practice central, where people were following the teaching of demons. And what's his advice to Timothy? It's not any weird supernatural stuff. 
Verse 13 of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. That's how we bind up Satan. Remembering and sharing and applying the gospel, the good news about Jesus. That gospel that says, verse 28, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Notice again the depth and the breadth of forgiveness. Just taking that reassurance first before the next verse. Forgiven all their sins and every slander. And such forgiveness is hard to take in, isn't it? Because I reckon every one of us can think of things we have done, things we still sometimes do, that feel like there might be a special case that disqualifies us from that forgiveness, a special category of sin. And Jesus himself tells us there is one, doesn't he? Verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. That's pretty terrifying, isn't it? What is this eternal sin that is never forgiven? Well, verse 30 helps us work it out. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So this unforgivable sin is very specifically here, the settled final belief that Jesus' power is satanic the belief held by the Pharisees. And it's unforgivable because it's failing to accept the only way God has provided to be forgiven. Jesus' obedience wins our forgiveness, bringing us out of darkness into his kingdom of light. But the Pharisees prefer darkness to submitting to Jesus. So if you're worried you've committed the unforgivable sin, well, that means that you definitely haven't because you are worried about what Jesus thinks of you. So to commit that unforgivable sin necessarily involves you not being worried that you have because you've rejected Jesus as mattering at all. But we need to go back to our sandwich. Um, the bookends, if it, as it were, of Jesus' family. So this, this section started with Jesus' family ascribing his actions not to Satan, but to mental health problems. And they've come to intervene. And now someone lets Jesus know they're outside. And Jesus replies, verse 33, Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at, at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So in the context of what Marcus told us Jesus preached, doing God's will is to repent, to turn away from sin, from living for yourself and worshipping your idols. Turn away from that and believe in Jesus. Believe in him that he is God's rescuer king. Come to him in faith for forgiveness. That's doing God's will. 
Just imagine how much Jesus loved his mum. Many of us love our mum, don't we? But Jesus, good and loving, perfect, must have really loved his mum, loved his siblings. Just think how well they would have known each other. But his own family is how Jesus chooses to describe his relationship with those, with us, who have the obedience of faith in him. See, everyone has to decide who they think Jesus is, where his power and authority came from. Even his own family had to. And if we remain in settled, final opposition to Jesus' own claims, if you reckon he was just a good man, or he was powerful, but his power wasn't from God, if that's what we believe, we remain unforgiven because we're rejecting God's one and only plan for winning our forgiveness. We're opposing God, and we know whose side that puts us on. But if we trust and believe Jesus is God the Son, who has bound up Satan and so can forgive our sins, we're stolen away, plundered away from slavery to sin, forgiven everything, and brought into Jesus' family. It's good to know who you're dealing with. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this word. Thank you that Jesus is yours, is your son. That he does have all authority and power and that authority and power comes from you and that he's defeated Satan. Uh, please remind us of that, the reassurance of that complete and total forgiveness that we have in him. Or if we know we don't have it this morning, Please help us to believe Jesus, repent, and follow him. Amen.